Listener discretion advised by the sound contains salty language. So if you don't like that, turn it down now. No, now, like right now. Okay. Let's start this fucking show. (laughs) We're trying a new recording system. um, So we sound less like Zoom garbage. Um, (laughs) From the Coast Salish land of Seattle, we're By the Sound, your community-invested podcast. I'm Sarah Mays, speaking today with Aisha Hauser and Raven Juarez. On this episode, we'll be joined by State Representative Kirsten Harris-Talley. This is By the Sound. Raven, how you doing? Hi, Sarah. Hi, Aisha. It's good to see you guys on our little Zoom call here. I'm doing great. Um, well, actually, no, that's a lie. Do you guys <laughs> notice that sometimes you are just trying to be friendly, so you say you're doing great, but really, uh, that it, I'm not doing great. It's uh, I, I haven't been sleeping. It's been very stressy. Um, but personally, I've been... Uh, getting into meditating. I told you last time I've been journaling more. I've been working really hard on staying centered and present because I'm learning that that's the best way to manage the complex feelings that come with uh, domestic terrorism at our capital and uh, just general confusion. And it, it keeps the panic from setting in too deeply. How are, how are you ladies doing? <laughs> Yeah, wow. Um, I always, when people ask me, how are you? I'm always like, do you want the truth? Or you want me just to say, okay, because I'm fine to say, okay, but it's not the truth. So, and I also learned pandemic fine. So I feel like, and now it's like pandemic slash insurrection, fine. Um, Nazi bullshit. So yeah, I, you know, I've actually been avoiding a lot of the minutiae talking heads fucking hand wringing by white people, white liberals and like, fuck all y'all. I mean, because gee, who could have predicted this? Anybody since 2016, (laughs) you dumbasses. So I know the the same surprise, (laughs) fucking frustrated. So, and I'm getting to learn about my new dog who we've been together three weeks. Her name is Gracie. And she looks like if you put a great Dane in the dryer, uh, she's about 56 pounds, but she's very, I've never had a diva dog before. I've just had dogs that act like dogs. She's got a little cat in her. So she's kind of like, if I give her food, she doesn't like, she's like, fuck you. I'm not eating this. I don't care what you paid. I don't care what you're trying to, and I adore her. It's like, I love how finicky and really sometimes mean you are. No, she's never mean. She's very, very sweet. So that's how I am. And, and, you know, I'm so looking forward to talking to representative Harris Talley to ask how you are going to, I don't know, inauguration day. I know, that shit. is exciting. That's a bright spot that we've been looking it forward is. to. For Sarah, sure. how are you? You, you sound so professional. I just love it. Every time you introduce the show, I'm like, Oh my God, Sarah's so professional. And I'm not. <laughs> Oh, dear Lord. Um, <laughs> God help us. Um, I, you know, I felt such um, a lightness after the election. Um, I, I, th- th- this, I realized how much weight had, had been pulling me down, like, like gravity was heavier or something. And, um, uh, then that heaviness just all came back in you know the on January sixth um and i it was 
you know, my kids were home, of course, with the the homeschooling, the remote learning, and they're doing their thing. And I'm just like watching TV in disbelief. Um, well, not disbelief, but um, there was a point at which I was wondering, are they actually going to count the electoral votes? You know, uh, and if they do, what day? You know, it, it, it came as a great relief to see them, you know, reconvene, do that. I was up until the wee hours um, waiting for those to get up to 270 electoral votes <laughs> to have the matter settled um, because it felt like, you know, democracy wasn't falling apart figuratively, but quite literally. Um We'll have a lot more to say about that, though, after the break, uh, when we're joined by Kirsten Harris-Talley. Hey, Raven. Yes? Will you be our new co-host for By the Sound? Uh, are you going to pay me? That seems fair. I, for one, don't think we should be asking women to do even more unpaid work. Um, but Sarah, how on earth are you going to pay me? That's what donors are for, Raven. Listeners who donate to the show on Patreon will make sure you get paid. The more donors we get, the more episodes we're able to make. Cool. Where can listeners go to donate? www.patreon.com slash by the sound. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash by the sound. Our guest today is Kirsten Harris-Talley. She is the newly elected state representative for the 37th district, which runs <laughs> which runs from the central district through southeast Seattle, onto Skyway, and all the way down to Renton. Before joining the legislature, Kirsten was executive director of NARAL Pro-Choice Washington and an interim city council member at Seattle City Council. Kirsten Harris-Talley, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. It's good to be with y'all today. So has anything interesting happened in the last week or so? No, (laughs) nothing. It's been very boring. Yeah. When we all brought in New Year at 2021, all problems from 2020 disappeared. You hadn't noticed? (laughs) Um. It was your first week in in the legislature. It's been our first week in the legislature. Yeah, I mean, I think the context, right, of I know a lot of us, we're seeing folks deal with what we're dealing with right now, I think nationally and locally with humor, right? So um, those memes of we're only a weekend, I will not be renewing this trial basis, right? I think that's, um, that's a meme I sat with. Um, <laughs> But to your point, you know, in the intro, right, seeing folks who in D.C. experience what they experienced get back to the task at hand to know that we started here in Washington State, walking into the Capitol and doing the task at hand, right, despite all that was happening, is happening. It's not in the past. It's in the present. Um, Folks doing the work of the people, which is what our job is. So, We've done that first week on Monday of this week, the 11th. That was done at the Capitol. It's the only day we convened as a legislature this year. What was it like showing up there? You know, I'm a mother of two. Our youngest is five in kindergarten. Our oldest is nine in fourth grade. 
it's a sobering thing to know you're starting your day at work, arriving at the Capitol, and to have that Capitol surrounded by National Guard. Um, and it's a mixture of relief because what we saw the same day on the 6th um, of what was happening in D.C., um, we also saw folks, you know, go past the gate at the governor's home. And for folks who saw the photos, they were standing on the governor's porch. I mean, there's photos, right, of folks with Trump flags standing on the governor's porch, staring down the National Guard who were literally blocking the door, the entrance to, um, you know, for us, the executive, the, a state's equivalent of the president, right, um, their home, their personal home. Um, and so, you know, it, it, there's a relief knowing, okay, there's some presence there because you don't know what's going to be there. You don't know. We're in a state, you know, we're in a very progressive state in Washington, but we have very active white supremacy in the state and have for a long time. And it's been invigorated and it's been growing. We know we've had, you know, doomsday training grounds happening in the eastern part of our state. because, And we also know that the state that abates us, Idaho, has very active unchecked white supremacy that spills over the border. For folks of color, I think, right, um, what it is to have... Um, Second Amendment rights displays at our Capitol. We're one of, you know, not all capitals and states have open carry laws. We do. People allowed to open carry in and around the campus of our Capitol. Um, all of that has amplified over the last few years. So um, it's a mixture of feelings to be a person of color entering, right, a place surrounded by law enforcement, but also know that they're there to protect us. Um, me and another colleague were personally escorted by those National Guard to the door because of where we had to be on campus to enter the campus. But then once inside, I mean, I'm an activist. So when you advocate in Olympia, there's thousands of people there, hundreds of people there, right? It's democracy happening in real time. It's busy and hurried. And the building was very quiet. There was a serenity because we were the only folks there. Um, and then to be on the floor with my colleagues, we found a way to have the number of House members were usually in very close proximity of each other, but we were able to do rotations. So it was wonderful to be on the floor and have that experience as a new colleague of doing that for just one day. So it was a mixture of relief and anxiety and joy. Mm. What's the plan for Wednesday? Do you know the 20th for Washington State? So the reason we had to assemble in person is because legally in Washington state, we hadn't passed the laws that let us re do remote session. And so that we were literally there to on the floor debate and vote in the rules that let us do our work from our, from in district in our homes mm -hmm. um, or somewhere in district locally. So we did all that policy. So we've actually been assembling outside of a handful of colleagues who have to go be present in Olympia for the administration of the work. Most of us are going to be at our homes. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that the National Guard presence has continued, that there is increased security continuing in Olympia. Um, I know there's a lot of, I mean, we're seeing in real time, right, in the Seattle Times, how seriously lots of states are taking the threats that have been coming up. I mean, it's interesting right now, all of this in social media space, right? Um, I don't know if folks who use Signal or you have heard of Signal, it's an encryption app. Um, Signal used to have be 750th in downloads. It's now number one, and they're tying it to white supremacist action happening in that encrypted space that they want encrypted um, communication because, right, they've been pushed out of Facebook. Many of them have been pushed out of Twitter. They've been pushed out of, what is it, Par Parallel? Parallel. 
parlor Mm -hmm. is now defunct, right? So all this stuff that was sort of on the surface to watch is now being pushed into the underground. Mm. Um, So there's, there's question marks and folks, I, I still have question marks, but I know the folks who are in the job of knowing or doing their work to know exactly what to do and where to be. So in a way the a lot of those platforms getting taken away has made it a little bit more dangerous, you think, because now it's happening in a space where we can't monitor it as well. I mean, I'm a black queer person. It's been dangerous the whole time. Um, right, of course. So I can't speak to the level of danger. I can speak to whether or not certain levels of information are able to, to you know, how that information, how quickly you get that information is shifting. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think what we're, what we're seeing in the Times and other papers, right, that are tracking this is that, yes, there's, you know, concerns among law enforcement who watch these things that whenever things go into an underground there are then question marks around motives and things and where people will be that increase what they have to do to keep folks safe in, in, in the roles that they have when they do to keep folks safe. So um, it's an interesting time. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. Day is on Monday. I've certainly been sitting and reflecting on, you know, what my elders and ancestors endured through the civil rights movement and the very clear parallels to what we're seeing nationally now, very clear and distinct. Um, I'm active in the Black Lives Matter movement to experience a summer of marches, right? Um, Leading up to this moment. I mean, there's so much here that um, history doesn't repeat itself, but it certainly echoes. And I think we have an echo of the unresolved things that we were denying about this country and where we are as a country and as a democracy Mm -hmm. that we are now having to face. The other thing that freaks me out, I mean, I'm not, I I mean, the part that I hope um, we're not underestimating, we being the United States, is how many in law enforcement are in on it, right? The Capitol, seeing AOC say, you know, Congress people, Congress, especially black and brown Congress People say they were worried their colleagues were going to fucking kill them. And they're mm. inside. And then there's law enforcement who are white supremacists. So how, who do you trust and how do you know? I think that's the part that I think um, is being, I, I don't know if it's being underestimated or not. And that's more like what happened. I'm, I was, I'm from Egypt and, and the, distrust of even people in authority is not something people are used to in this black people are and brown people white people are not used to that so Mm -hmm. that's that i that i wonder is you know law enforcement but are law enforcement on this signal thing who are feet i mean that's the part that to me is like i need to not think about too much or i'll have a panic attack like that it's the people on the inside who are also wanting to upend all of this to maintain white supremacy and, and I mean, I'm I'm an abolitionist, right? So we know that these systems are built of structures of control that are deeply linked to, to slavery. And, you know, when I talk about abolition, I'm like, you don't have to, I'm not talking about abstractly. I'm talking materially yep. in live action, right? Like this state, we still shackled women when they gave birth. If you were also someone who was on the inside when you were giving birth, that is not an abstract concept of slavery, that is a direct link to slavery where, where black bodies were literally chained through almost all activities they did, um, right? So there, so we've known that, but to your point, right? Um, I've said 2020, like we talk about 2020 and vision, right? 2020 is clear, it's the clearest vision. The year 2020 is the clearest vision, right? Like 
it is truth unadulterated, untainted. We have to be unwavering and looking at it. Any denial we've had about, you know, after Obama was, you know, Obama was president, we were post-racism, like, right? Like all that illusion is gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have actually what we have, right? And what we have is a global pandemic and a country that is literally the richest country in the world when you think about the amount of resources here that are not ours, that are taken from other places because of how capitalism works in this country, right? Right. And we are ill-equipped to respond, right? The other thing that came out this week is that the federal administration lied about the amount of doses of the vaccine that are available, which means states are now going to have to respond to the plans that we have rolled out in the administration of the drug because there's literally not enough supply. People's stimulus checks this round of $600 came out on debit cards where there was a MasterCard affiliation where every time you use the debit card, you are charged for the use of the card. What? Oh, for fuck's sake. That happened this week as well. Right. So, so I'm just saying this because the context of what's happening right in DC and on the state level, and we can't unlink them. There's activity happening in every state as well tied to this white supremacy. Mm -hmm. Also, we have the way capitalism is linked to trying to respond to our economic recovery, which we do not have a plan. We just don't. If the plans to double down on capitalism, that's not going to be, that's not going to be a helpful plan. Um, and we're in a global pandemic where people's lives are literally on the line, right? And so what I thought my biggest anxiety of starting, of going to work in the one day we had to assemble was if I had any colleagues who wouldn't be willing to wear masks, right? Because we have a spectrum of political views in our legislature, right? And in the context of the pandemic, there are colleagues who are saying, don't wear masks and don't close the economy. Everyone should be milling, right? Like there's people in Washington state saying that in the legislature. Um, and, you know, so... So that's the thing in this moment, right? We have to, we're being faced by the truth of a lot of things happening simultaneously that we can't turn away from or cower from, that we have to keep taking action on and being diligent about. Um, So that's what I keep thinking about. What's in my control? Because there's a lot happening that's not. (laughs) What's in my sphere of control is where I'm focusing my energy. How do you work with those colleagues? And I I mean this very literally as I've been... um, because it is terrorism that's been taking place, Republican white terrorism, and the the form it's taken is there's kind of the abstract terrorism of wondering, can our democracy function um, because of how they're jamming up the works, either with violence or with bullshit? Um, but then, you know, there's the personal terrorism of, say, being Pramila Jayapal, our, our congresswoman, uh, is stuck in a room with anti-science, anti-reason, anti-compassion, just sociopaths who won't wear fucking face masks, and and that's terror. And and like you said, people walking around the Capitol with guns, and like the combination of all these things. It's it's like the Republican Party is blaring that they are crazy and they're dangerous and it's and and there's very little ideological consistency to work with. Literally, how do you work with Republicans when we're so far apart on even agreeing to facts or what facts mean in, in logic? Yeah, I mean, I, I have always, I always come from a, a heart 
space in my work. That's just how I do my work, right? So I start always with work, particularly with work where I know someone and I are not going to always be in agreement or, or that I have to communicate with someone who may not be in agreement that my humanity is valid, right? And I say that because I grew up in rural Missouri in the middle of nowhere, Pop 300. I grew up around a lot of people who did not, throughout my life, who did not think my humanity was valid. I grew up in active KKK country, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up actively being called the N-word on a daily basis, not not even an attack way. It was just a casual way of, of speaking. I, I grew up in a state that the Mason Dixon really happened in the middle of that state, right? Like all this conflict that's unresolved from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement now, right? I experienced that in real time as a child. That has given me a temperance, I think, around it. And, not, and I say that not to excuse it, but I under, I understand it. Um, and that having an understanding of where it's, where it's coming from, being in total disagreement with it, knowing that it's not actually the, the path that I know is the path that, that we and me and my neighbors know is the path of healing and taking care of folks and showing up and changing structures that are oppressing all of us. Um, it at least gives me a starting place to be present with them, right? And the thing about politics is it's a popularity contest about ideas, end stop, period. And it's mm-hmm. about power. And particularly laws we're realizing now, and I think everything you said, Aisha, right, about what is it to be uncertain about the authorities that be, right? Like for most of us, that's the beginning of understanding actually how the world works, right? And to your point, Sarah, they are just now saying out loud the stuff they used to say behind closed doors and dog whistle out loud. And that's what's frightening to folks. It's like, you're willing to be this explicit about it. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, it's always been here. Now the explicitness level is what you're concerned about, not the actual danger that's been happening. And I say this because the numbers we're seeing with the pandemic, folks who experienced AIDS in the 80s, I was a young, young child when all that was happening, right? But we, we have already experienced openly a government being total in disregard to people's lives, right? We've seen that already. Um, we saw it with... Um, the, the Tuskegee studies, right, on black bodies, a government that fully devoid and did not take action when they could to save thousands of lives. We've seen it with women and how we've been treated and sterilized inside and outside of prisons, whether you're an indigenous woman or a Puerto Rican woman who, when the you know United States colonized your space. We've been seeing these dangers for a long time. Um. But starting with the humanity lets us then have the discourse about the ideas. Because at the end of the day in politics, I need to have the majority of popularity on the idea because it's about passing laws or stopping really bad laws from passing. Those are the two ways you legislate. Um, and so that's what I do. I just, I sit deeply rooted in my humanity. We have our internal caucus where we have the explicit conversations we need to have. And um, these calls for unity without accountability, that's not the way things work. So, mm. Raven, I think you had a question. Yeah. Oh, how did you know? Did you read my face? (laughs) Um, Yeah, I was just wondering, what do you say, you know, in response? Because that's a narrative I've heard a little bit coming up is that it's divisive to kind of hold people accountable for what they've said, hold people accountable to doing too little too late. Um, And how, how do you kind of explain that accountability doesn't equate divisiveness like on your platform and with people who are, um, sharing that conversation with you and through legislation conversations? It, it's an interesting question. And again, I, 
I always come from my work from a perspective of humanity. And the thing with accountability is accountability is much more than an apology. Accountability is action taken, right? And I always talk through on an interpersonal level, our institutions are only, um, you know, cementing of inter- interpersonal dynamics that we allow or don't allow. That's what institution institutions are just people doing things or not doing things, period, right? So if you get back to that base level in your personal interactions, you can't have unity without accountability. You can't actually move on with something and rebuild trust and be back to square one to start something together without first apologizing, right? Saying, I see that something wrong happened. Taking responsibility, saying, I did that. Here's the things I did. And then also then making amends and saying, and here are the actions I will no longer do or here are the actions I will take up so that that doesn't happen again. That's the only true way to have accountability, period, and stop. If you don't do all three of those things, all three of them, and then actually take those actions you say you're going to take or in the actions you say you're going to end, you'll never have unity because you can't have unity without trust. Right. If you don't trust people or institutions or your neighbor, you can't be unified. How do you get unified around something, right? Trust is the base of all of it. And so, and I say that because I believe in second chances. That's why I'm an abolitionist. I don't believe folks should be thrown away and disregarded um, for the way that they um, have choice points or not in the way our society is structured. I certainly don't think we should have institutions that hurt and harm people um, who find themselves having to be separated from our society at the time, right? Um, And I believe in second chances. And so I believe you can rebuild trust, but the only way to do it is accountability. So that's what I say back to folks, right? And I also just say, my five-year-old gets it. Yeah? My five-year-old, I never let my five-year-old hit another kid, right, and play, and then go, it's fine. Hey, other kid, why aren't you playing with them and liking them again, right? Like, Mm -hmm. no one does that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a natural (laughs) consequence. I mean, after the Civil War, Southerners were allowed to do whatever the fuck they wanted and, and made the lives of, you know, freed slaves miserable to this day. So there's never been accountability in this country to no. the indigenous people or no. the mm-hmm. descendants of enslaved Africans ever. I think that's why so it's such a foreign concept. It's like, the, why should I or something? Well, there's no exact, but, and, and there's this exceptionalism because of violent extractive capitalism that it's fine. Like we should, we needed to do this so we could make money. And it's just that. So, so I guess to me, it's like, how do you, not how, Look at even even the New York Times 1619 report. Fucking politicians came out railing against it. I'm like, this is how deeply rooted uh, white supremacy, white people who want to keep the status quo, that even a report about the reality, a non-whitewashed version. And it's the New York Times. It's hardly stamped from the beginning, like a 900-page book. It's I mean, was was elicited such a response that even talking about it in school. So, because oppression me, has not, to be a historical oppression doesn't work if people actually understand no, exactly, and their history. Exactly. And that's why it's so uncomfortable. Right. right. Um, if I could, um, something you said just gave me another uh, question for you. I'm always curious to ask this question: um, how how do you kind of or do you share what's happening in the news with your children and how do you talk about it with them? And I, you said they're nine and five. So I imagine yeah. 
Is it a different conversation with the older one or? Um, I tend to have the same conversation with both. And then sometimes I will come back to our, our older uh, child and give more context or, or have a more complex conversation. But I usually tell them in concert. Um, and I think that's important. I always want my older child to witness how we're communicating with the younger child about it. Um, and I, I will say we do it in doses. Again, like I'm trying to stay focused on, on my spheres of control with my media consumption, um, particularly as I'm coming into this job. Like our neighbors are really hurting, you know, as they're described in the 37th, we're one of the most diverse districts in the state. So staying focused on where I have control. I do a lot of dose conversations about all of this when things come up. So for instance, we were doing an activity with the youngest around Martin Luther King and they were saying, um, you know, it's like, I have a dream. And they're like, I have a dream. I'm going to become a police officer and put people in jail. And I was like, this is interesting. Tell me more about this dream, right? Because we talk openly about being abolitionists. We talk open, right? But like they had this idea, right? Of this is how they were going to help. And so when we got into it and deconstructed it, I was like, you know, well, do you think jails are a place that people actually get help, Right. Um, so I hear you saying you want to help people who get harmed. And then what do we do with the people who cause the harm? Do you think jails are actually the place where that happens? Right. So you have sort of these age appropriate conversations as those things come up and try mm -hmm. to be center and present. I was talking to another friend about this and she said, so often parents will shut the conversation down because of their discomfort or their lack of, of not having centered themselves in the context of what's happening. The other thing I often do sometimes in real time when my kids ask me hard questions where I'm hit like that is I'll, I'll acknowledge it and say, mama has to think about that and take a pause. <laughs> and But I'm going to come back to you later today, right? Or I'm going to talk to dad about it and we're going to figure that out and come back because that's a great question. Um, it was hard describing what my first day of work was going to be like and figuring out how to do that without scaring them, right? And so it was like, well, the National Guard will be there. We looked at a lot of pictures of the Capitol, gave them an idea of what it would be like, gave them an idea of what my day would look like. I told them, you know, I'm going to be checking in with your dad all day. He stayed home that day, which I think helped a lot because, you know, one parent was home with them the whole day while I was there so we could have a lot of check-in points. Um, it's the It's the constant thing. I know, Sarah, you and I have had many conversations about it, right? Like how you have those conversations with your kids in a way that meets them where they are, tells them the truth, but lets them still have hope and aspiration, right? For the world. Balancing <laughs> act. Yeah. And I worry, you know, I worry for your family now. Um, I, there, there wasn't, you know, there hasn't just been this uh, the pro-Trump Republican terrorists showing up at Governor Inslee's home, uh, arms people jumping the fence, and and luckily not getting into the governor's mansion. But it's it's not just Inslee; um, it's it's Gretchen Whitmer, it's uh, well Nancy Pelosi and and Mitch McConnell have uh, had. Um, vandalism and uh, such at their homes there have been uh congress members who've had their kids like terrorized by uh anti-maskers showing up at their homes uh and then i would be remiss on totally the other side you know not to equivocate the causes in the least but the everyday marches brought protesters last summer around to council members homes um 
and uh, Shama Sawant led protesters to um, uh, Jenny Durkin's house, and protesters went to Carmen Best's house. And how does democracy work with that? Because, say, um, imagine someone, say, living in an apartment or living in, in a home with no security whatsoever, no means of, of protecting themselves. And how do they serve the public in office if, you know, say their whole apartment building could be disrupted by, by gatherings? Um, it's one of the, you know, heavier parts of what it is to think about moving into public life and service right? Um, the second I was elected, my job is to serve every one of the, you know, over 80,000 people in my district, whether they believe in my humanity or not, um, whether they agree with me politically or not. Um, and the thing about representing the public is the, is, uh, the safety in that will be as safe as the health that that public has. And we're not a country that uh, takes care of people very well, are we? Right? Mm. Um, and so that's the container in which you serve. Um, and so that's, that's, that's in what I take in it, right? Um, I believe in the humanity of people. I believe most people want to help, not harm. I, that's what I experienced in my life. Um, and that a lot of people have uncertainty about what to do and, and don't take action because they don't want to make the wrong choice, right? So there's sort of a third, third, third of that, a third of folks who, aren't going to be in agreement with your humanity, a third of folks who will, you know, lay it down with you and a third of folks who just don't know what to do but want to show up on the right side of things. Um, and so, you know, I do in my public life, what I did in my activism, I build circles of trust around myself. I build circles of care. I work to respond to people in care, even as they would attack me. And I say this because, you know, um, you know, Sarah, at City Hall, right? The, ven- the venom that some folks have just because you are now in a place of authority. Um, mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with me or the work or the district. Um, that's part of it. And, you know, I'm not going to say, you know, when I when my family sat down and really thought you're going to run for office, it was one of the first things uh, Jason and my husband said. Is he's like, it scares me to think that you could be in a role like this and so visible in public. And I was like, the truth is, walking around with my skin and identities, I'm vulnerable all the time, aren't I, in some ways? Um, and there's a lot of folks who have that lived experience. Um, and if if you can be of service to people, um, but I'm not going to say it, it doesn't cause fear and anxiety. I, too, like you, Raven, are trying to get into my daily practice of how to relax and center myself. Um, I think a lot of us are figuring out how do you center yourself when you have to look, don't, don't live in illusion anymore and have to look that bad. But the reality of what we're mm-hmm. in, I think all of us are figuring that out. It's hard. It's not easy um, to see things really clearly and not have them look nice and feel nice all the time. Yeah. Well, I think that's where a lot of um, that my, one of my major frustrations is kind of that I think Aisha, you mentioned it earlier, but the kind of shock or surprise that I think a lot of people are having after what happened at the Capitol or even just um, the more mainstream acceptance of super racist rhetoric is like, oh, like this isn't who we are. This isn't our country. This isn't the America I grew up in. I'm more scared of that. And that really blows me away because 
clearly this is not new. And that really, that's one of the things that spirals me if I think about it for too long. And I do feel very powerless to how do you shake an entire population and say like, look backwards, like it's always been here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing, right? Like the thing with white supremacy is that when you have an illusion that says just by just by being accepted into this make-believe club, you're going to have an unwavering advantage um, and never have to experience discomfort, right? That's the promise of whiteness. And what I see in Trump supporters, and I say this because I grew up amongst many folks who I know now are 100% are Trump supporters, right? I don't live where I grew up. So I'm not there to say, but I can guarantee. And it's because the circumstances of whiteness never worked out for them, right? And that's that's the, the corrosiveness of... Um, of um, entitlement, right? And this country has a lot of entitlement on a lot of levels. The right. thing about democracy, you know, the way you're describing it, Sarah, in some ways, America feels entitled to a democracy without having to grapple with the harm and hurt of, of the people, right? And I say that because democracies that are older than ours have already experienced all this stuff many times over. <laughs> And I very, say that very because, good point. <laughs> you know, our capital is wide open for anyone to walk into, right? Like when what happened to Gabby happened, right? I saw the federal offices, how all of a sudden security was a consideration that had never been considered before, right? Um, so that's, that's the thing we have to grapple with is um, I agree with you. Democracy has to be, people have to know they can come to the halls of where democracy happens and that they can be safe for democracy to work. But the truth is a lot of folks haven't felt safe to come to those halls for a long time everywhere, mm. including here in Washington state. I know a lot of neighbors who've never felt safe to walk in those marble halls in Olympia where I have as an activist. So we have a lot of work to do. Well, I think you make a really good point too, because our country is comparatively super, super young. And I think that there's also an ingrained mentality that this is how we've always done things. This is how it's always been. It's too late to change now. This is how it works. But that's just a falsehood. We, we're we're a very young country and there's lots of time and there's room for imagination. Um, there's room for massive upheaval in different areas. And it's so frustrating to have people kind of have this mentality that it's not only like, okay, that we've evolved this way as a nation, but it's silly or a waste of time or divisive to try to find alternate alternate ways of doing business that don't disenfranchise and oppress, you know, so, so many of our citizens. Well, the illusion of unity, right, is that divisiveness is bad. Divisiveness isn't bad. It just means difference. Difference is sort of what democracy is about. It's supposed to be about contrast. That's why it's a popularity contest of ideas, right? Contrast is not a bad thing. If the contrast in this moment is there are people literally begging for authority to see their humanity and act accordingly, right? There is not an institution in this country that a black person knows they will have justice and sameness and fairness in. Not one, not a single one, not in the entertainment industry, not even the made up ones like the entertainment industry, let alone the government service ones like healthcare and education um, and the way police will or will not respond to you. Um, and to your point, the thing that keeps me as an activist, no one gets told no more than an activist. 
activists get told no all the time. But for me, I'm like, these institutions were built by people. That means they can be rebuilt and changed by people. That means we, if we just made this stuff up, we can make up something that's better. That's amazing, right? That gets me up in the morning. We have Um, to let go of our addiction to white supremacy and violent extractive capitalism. The United States does, like you said, start a plan that that starts with capitalism is a non-starter. It's just going to maintain exactly the status quo. Which is why I I refuse to say we're rebuilding the economy. I am not going to rebuild what was here before. I'm ready to transform the economy. I am ready for that conversation. Oh, yeah. I will have a conversation about transforming this economy all day long, but I'm not rebuilding it. Nope. No brick needs to be laid that has fallen at this point. Not a one. Amen. Excellent. And after this break, we will come back with uh, more about transforming the economy. Hey, Raven. Hey, Sarah. What's the best part of donating to Buy the Sound on Patreon? Uh, other than helping us to make more episodes of the podcast? Yeah. I like the daily local news updates. With so much local news to follow, it's great to see all the stories that matter in one place without all the fluff. And it's available for as little as five bucks a month. Our news updates are posted almost every day to our private Facebook group, which all supporters are invited to join once they donate to Buy the Sound through Patreon. Our donors will also see previews of upcoming episodes, and they'll have access to bonus content streaming through our Patreon page. Are there any other benefits to supporting Buy the Sound? Listeners who donate at the Alki level or above will receive invitations to our meetups, where they can meet by the sound co-hosts, guests, and supporters of the show. We'll be having more of these in the coming months via Zoom and eventually in spots all around Seattle. Are there any other benefits for our supporters? Yes. Listeners who support the show at the Discovery, Westlake, or Gasworks membership level will receive all the benefits we described, plus the opportunity to nominate and sponsor a guest of their choosing to be interviewed in a future episode of the show. It's one of the many ways that we're making By the Sound a community-invested podcast. That's so cool. Remind me where people go to donate. People can learn all about these benefits and more at www.patreon.com slash by the sound. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash by the sound. So before the break, we were talking about uh, how inadequate it is to rebuild the economy when uh, we need a whole other fucking system. So. Um, I know that uh, in your campaign and now that you've gone to Olympia, you've had a lot of focus on renters, which um, thank you so much. Uh, that means a lot to me. Yeah, it's, seriously. I, I, <laughs> I, I feel that most uh, politicians at every level um, seems to see uh, homeowners long before they see renters. Um, in the direction of transforming um, our economy and our relationship with government. Uh, what would you like to see happen uh, for renters in this next session? Uh, we have a lot to do. Um, I'm working on a policy right now around um, the penalties and fees put on homeowners, like individual homeowners, who, particularly in the rental market, when they have penalties and fees against homes that um, we know are providing housing for renters, right? Because what we saw happen to renters was the exodus of like everyday people having housing that folks could be in and losing that. We saw a huge exodus for renters. So that's huge. Um, Cause there are interlinks between the two. 
I'm really sick of at the state level having a conversation as if all homeowners are created equal and there is not strata of who are landlords and who are not. And right, like those conversations, there's a big difference between large corporate landlords, right? And an auntie that literally is renting out a unit, usually at a really good rate, right? To a single mom somewhere to both keep her house and keep that family in our community. So those kind of conversations are really important. Um, That's why I, uh, let me interject here. I was frustrated by those uh, calls in March for renter strike personally, uh, because um, I have the luxury of uh, renting from a a small time landlord um, and uh, am happy to be in my home and just had the sense that, you know, if everyone in my building uh, boycotted paying the rent, uh, then we just get sold off to the building. It just gets sold off to Wall Street, essentially, and um, that isn't necessarily the landlord I want in my life anymore. Right, right. Um, so there's yeah. So that the context of that conversation. I mean, the governor has ex- again extended the moratorium on paying rent, but what we're of course seeing is that that doesn't keep landlords from evicting folks when the renewal of their lease comes up, right? Or shifting the lease agreement so dramatically. So their folks are are losing housing. Now, what's interesting, the biggest consideration, as always, is housing inventory. We will not stabilize our renter market until we have enough housing inventory. We just don't anywhere in the state. Um, So another policy I'm working on, surprisingly, I mean, this is a place where you were talking through, right? Like, I, I signed on to a bill, and then when I looked, I'm like, I'm the only member of my caucus to sign on, and it's because um, a Republican um, is stewarding the bill. But it's a bill that's looking at transferring unused government buildings to non-government organizations, fast-tracking those for priority for housing projects, right? And I'm like, yeah, let's do that. Like, why aren't we doing that, right? And they're doing it because they're in a hyper-rural area, that they're like, there's no new construction coming here. Right? Like no one's going to be coming and building. No corporation wants to invest in this corner of our state. And so we need to use the inventory we have now to build that. That I, of course, what I would love to see, and it's I know it's a no-go in this next ledge session because of how dire our revenue picture is in this state. But what we need to be talking about in a country, this country, and particularly in this state, like all states in this country, is what Canada's doing where we have rent forgiveness because my anxiety is about what this bundle up's looking like for folks a year in. I cannot imagine as a mom of two, right? Um, knowing that I'm uh, maybe 10, you know, six months, eight months, 12 months. Some people haven't been able to pay this entire time in the rears and then it's going to come up due. And then what am I going to do? Right. Uh, capitalism keeping debt on top of people doesn't help them either. And um, if the government government can't find relief there, I know the little bit of conversation that's been happening at the state level, it's like, well, do we give it directly to the landlords or to the people paying the rent? I'm like, give it to the people paying the rent so that it's portable because you don't know where they were before versus now um, as a renter. Um, So there's ideas starting to bubble. Um, Whether we'll be able to move on them quick enough for give folks relief in 2021 is going to be the question mark. Um, We have some good ideas coming through. But a lot of it's about uh, larger solutions, and we will continue to need relief from um, the Department of Commerce. Manages a lot of the things that give relief to renters right away, and we need that. So we're going to, and we're going to need every jurisdiction at the city level and county level as well to work together with the state, because a lot of those mechanisms are lower jurisdictions. So I feel really great. You know, my coalition here is Tammy Morales on the city level. Um, 
Gerbaize Halai on the county level. He's the council member who overlaps with my district. So we have a pretty good, bold coalition, all folks of color as well, which is kind of wild in our district. So, but yeah, no, I agree with you, Sarah. We too often ignore renters when they're the majority of folks um, certainly struggling in this moment, but also the majority of our neighbors are renters, period. They are now, yeah. Mm -hmm. For the first time in several decades, uh, Seattle renters are the majority. Um, so I hope that will lead to, to more attention, uh, for our issues. So when you were on the show 13 months ago, uh, you hadn't, uh, started your campaign yet. <laughs> um, do you regret it? And I ask, cause I look at you, I hear you talking about, you know, the challenges you're facing, um, you know, both, both the, the, our, our present nightmare, but also the more longer term nightmares and the, the difficulty of governing uh, and and uh, passing legislation and being in that kind of body. Do you regret what you spent the last year doing? I Who wants to do by... this? <laughs> <laughs> such a good question. It's such a good heart question. I mean, I ain't gonna lie, right? There are times I'm in like, what was I? First, it's the hardest job interview on earth, first of all, right? It's just, you know, so I'm not going to lie. There were times in the middle of the job interview. I was like, what am I doing? What, what is this bizarreness that is campaigning, right? Um, but more than not, you know, for every one time I have the thought of, are you really where you can give the most good? That's how that question shows up for me when I ask it. Is this really where you can do the most good right now? More than not, the answer is yes, not no. Um, so that's good. That's a good day. Um, and the truth is, I have been really sitting and being really centered. And I, I'm still working on it. You know, I'm a recovering perfectionist. I'm, I'm, I'm a person who's recovering from imposter syndrome, from the career path like so many women of color have had to have, right? And what that carries with us. Um, all sorts of women, period, right? Like there's enough patriarchy in the workplace that all women experience that on some level. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there's times where I'm like, am I, am I actually prepared to serve in this moment? And then sitting in the trust that like, I am. Yeah, I did do one of the hardest job interviews. And mo- most of my neighbors said, we want to stand beside you and do that. And a reminder always, because this is the hardest thing in politics. You are the person, right? On everything that goes out. None of us do this work in isolation, right? There are I'm with thousands of neighbors doing the work. I'm with coalitions on the ground doing the work. I'm with, you know, staff within the legislature who support our processes to do the work. Um, So that's the other thing. Don't, none of us, I hope, and it's hard during a pandemic because we're we're literally physically isolated (laughs) as well. Anyone who's sitting and feeling like you're alone in this, figure out that thing that connects you to the your humanity to other people's humanity to get through the work. And then then we're going to get through it. And I really truly believe that I'm seeing now so many folks, I was talking to another friend, right? I was hugely team Nikita for mayor, as folks know. I was very much behind her campaign. And then this summer I was thinking through, I was like, how different would the considerations of what the Black Lives Matter movement be right now if Nikita was mayor instead of being in the streets with the people right now, right? I I could not see the through line, but blessings to them, right? That they were where they are in the moment when community needed them to be there to show up the way we needed to. And I, I keep trying to sit in that faith that everyone who's supposed to be in the place they are now are the right people to help us all steward 
through this, no matter where we are right now and no matter what condition we're in, because it's a hard time right now, you know? Um, and so that's, for me as an activist, I always try to come back to that hope and truth of our shared humanity and purpose together. And then you, you get up and then you go, oh, see, it's not that bad. Get to work. Oh, I, I have no doubt of your, um, <laughs> your readiness uh, for the job. I just think you're kind of crazy for doing it, but you know. <laughs> thankful though. Very thankful that you are. <laughs> I am thankful for all the folks who are willing to do this, um, to do what they do. I'm thankful for every frontline worker. Every time I go to the grocery store, I'm thankful that, you know, the checkout person showed up at work that day. Every time, you know, my husband works in the hospital system, I'm like, thank goodness nurses have still been showing up to work, right? Like, I have a lot of gratitude right now for how folks are showing up for each other who are doing, who are in work right now because it's not easy and folks are continuing to show up. Well, that's one of the ways I think that it is really powerful to stay grounded and to stay present is to practice that gratitude. I feel like that's my my number one way of centering is to list out the things I'm grateful for every day, even on the hardest days. And even on the sixth, I mean, I stayed home from work to watch the news. Uh, I was pretty much glued to the television the whole day. I got in bed with that kind of like, uh, I'm sure you guys all can relate, but it's like that kind of like hypnotic, that's like the same 10 thoughts circling, circling. And even on that day, I was able to find people I was grateful for, people who were there helping, like you said, the people who show up for work, the, the first responders, the frontline healthcare workers, there's always people to be grateful for. And you're one of them. I'm so glad we got a chance to talk to you today and to hear all your wisdom. And it's very inspiring. And for me personally, it's giving me um, a lot more hope and a lot more motivation to, to get that work done. Oh, well, thank you all for creating this forum where folks can stay connected, right? Having spaces like this to keep folks connected on these ideas and asking these questions in real time while it's happening. We have to keep doing that if we're going to stay on the truth, stay in the truth. So thank you for these conversations. Thank you for keeping us present. Um, and uh, thank you so much for being on the show again, Kirsten harris Tally. We'll be right back. Aisha, what are you grateful for this week? I'm grateful for my dog who I taught. I think I talked about her in the beginning. <laughs> she, she's just so sweet. And I, and animal, you know, I don't know people. I feel, you know, I want to have hope for humans, but sometimes I just feel like we should know better and we don't. And animals are just kind of going along being and just wanting to eat. And sometimes they eat each other, but it's okay. They're not selling each other in the market. So I'm just grateful <laughs> for animals who are just kind of going along and I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm wanting not to be, I don't like to be cynical. I'm not cynical by nature, but I'm just kind of sick of human beings in general, but maybe just white human beings. I need to be careful not to. <laughs> wow. I'm so I'm grateful for my dog and my children. I have two adult children. I really should give them a shout out. They don't, they're, they're not in the house anymore. So yeah, I've just been waking up every morning feeling gratitude for Gracie. Her name is Gracie. My, five-year-old Akita mix. Um, and that's it. What about you, Raven? What are you grateful for? You know, I'll jump on your animal bandwagon first and say, I'm also very grateful for my dog, Glenn. Um, he's a teeny guy, 
but we've been spending so much time together in the last year and we've developed, I think, an unhealthy amount of uh, reliance on each other. I'm not sure if he's my emotional support anymore, if I'm his, the lines are blurring, but he's been wonderful to have and uh, we're learning a lot about each other. Um, I'm also very grateful for my community at my preschool that I work at, Roaring Mouse Creative Arts Preschool. They have just been the most, from the staff to the parents to my little students, just the warmest community. It feels like a hug every time I walk into my space, even though it's empty right now. Um, But I've just received through all of this, you know, Christmas cards and holiday cards, um, check-ins and video messages and sweet little notes and gifts that they leave outside for me. And I just, I'm so thankful for all of them and that I get the opportunity to still stay connected, to still be employed. So thank you, Roy Mouse. And I'm very, very thankful for all elected women officials, all of my ladies in power. Um... I also, I'll say, you know, as they say on TikTok, TikTok, the girls, the theys, and the gays, all the elected ones. I love you. I'm grateful for you. We need you. Keep it up. <laughs> Kirsten, what are you grateful for this week? I'm really grateful um, for my husband. I, I thought I was prepared for what this week was, but I literally had one day where from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., it was just back-to-back meetings. I didn't, and he had like prepared all this food and like just like holding it down. Um, I have deep gratitude for my kids. They are like the best entertainers and just so funny. And um, so every time I need to like be grounded and present, I'm still in my head, like just having them there to be. Um, And I've had a lot of gratitude actually for how the way media, local media, hyper-local media particularly has been showing up to share things of hope and dreams still from community. I've been really relishing that. So at the same time, I'll read the article that grounds me right. And some of there's always an accompanying article of an aspiration or inspiration. So particularly the South Seattle Emerald has had a really great series by activists and folks like really helping us get refocused. So I love that when media is showing up right with people's stories and voice. So um, gratitude for those moments to be aspirational and inspirational. We had Marcus Green here a couple weeks ago, Kirsten. Yeah, it was very cool. Sarah, what are you grateful for? Yeah, he was on. Oh, um, I am grateful for um, all the, the army of independent uh, artists on sites like uh, Redbubble and Etsy. Um, there are probably others. As I was doing my Christmas shopping, I was, um, you know, this happens too often, deciding to give myself a present <laughs> <laughs> during the Christmas season. So I ordered some wall art and some cool stickers and um, just uh random beautiful things that made me so happy when they showed up in the mail um and i it it can take me a while to move into a place uh, years sometimes and when i finally get the right things up on the wall see this was the wisdom kirsten had in setting up her office at city councils that she she knew you got to get that art up on the wall asap um cuz it really just sets uh sets the tone for your whole life. Um, so thank you, independent artists. Thank you, Kirsten Harris Talley. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been By the Sound, your community-invested podcast. 
by the sound is an Ahoy Hoy Media production. Ahoy Hoy!